Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is the 16th of August. Um, we have a we have a lot to talk about this week. Uh, you know, more so than usual, I think. Uh, we've been, and we've gotten a lot of requests, which is new. We're very glad that you, as listeners, are interacting with us. So thank you for that. Um, I have Tammy and Andy with me. We're trying out a new software. There's been a lot of complaints, which I think are all warranted about our audio quality, uh, which I've always thought was like, I'm always like, my general thought is just like, eh, whatever, it's fine. But um, I don't think it is fine. So we have invested in some stuff to bring a better show for you. So how are you guys doing today? Let's see how they, let's see how they. Good. Specifically, it was like four complaints about my audio. <laughs> yeah, it's always Andy's audio. I know. Very personally. And Andy, Andy took the... personally. Andy like decided that he was going to improve it by going in a bathroom, which is like the most echo- <laughs> echoey space possible and refuses to not be in the bathroom, but that's okay. Um, Tammy, how's Montana? I'm going to ask you this every time because it still sort of floors me that you're in Montana. I'm doing well. The students, though, are coming onto campus en masse now, which is kind of scary. Oh, no. I feel like as an old person compared to them, I just see vectors. Do, you, are, are, do they all look very young? They look so young and so full of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> are you, Andy, are you teaching in, in person at all this semester? Has that been confirmed? Our campus is doing a hybrid, but I'm personally, I'm doing a little bit, but for the most part, online. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting that but where I grew up in Chapel Hill, uh, they started school. So they had 30,000 students come in. Almost all the classes are online, but they still wanted the students to come for some reason, I think, to like, quote unquote, help the support the local economy. Like I talked to one, <laughs> yeah. I talked to one of my friends who's there and he was like, yeah, the burrito shop was like, oh, my God, thank God that the students are I coming bet. or else because our PPP loan went under. Or is ending, which you know it's a real thing. Right. So yeah. it's important to have yeah. the students there. But oh my god, like thirty thousand—that's crazy. Yeah, it's a big school. How big is Montana? Yeah, it's tiny. It's like what, like yeah. five thousand or something? We have, yeah. I mean, it used to be much, much bigger, and now it's under ten thousand students. So oh wow, there's oh, only wow. there's less than two thousand new students coming in. Okay, yeah, that's not so bad. But Carolina has a lot yeah. of students. And they've had four outbreaks in three days already. They had, one, oh my God. they had one that was linked to a fraternity house. And then they were like contact tracing oh, the course. crap out of that one. And they found all, and then, but then they found two separate ones in these dorms. And none of them are really related to one another. So it's, you know, it's four separate oh, outbreaks wow. in three days. I mean, that's crazy. You know, I don't know how they're going to do it. Now, there's like two ways oh to God. think about it. The first is that it's great that they're finding the cases because I bet at a lot of universities, they're not even trying. But secondly, it's like you guys are just like, you know, like you're just firing off (laughs) infection chains like all over the place in this in this town, you know, and there are old professors there. I don't know. I don't know what's going on with these universities. Like my my neighbor here in Berkeley uh, teaches in New York City. So he's he's out here in Berkeley. But, um, you know, he came out here when the pandemic hit with his wife. And he's like, he has to go back to New York to teach. And he was telling me, he was like, they're making oh me God. go back to teach. And I was like, what? He's like 75 years old or something like that. Oh, my God. Is he doing the two days a week in person? I don't know, but he seemed okay. stressed about it, you know? Super yeah. stressful at that, at that age. At that age, he should be able to opt out. 
Yeah. I mean, it depends on the school policy, but well, look, our school, th- yeah. this, I'm not going to name the university, but it is a very wealthy university with like chapters yeah. around the world. I'm sure. And like the idea that they mm-hmm. can't afford to just right. pay him to do remote learning is, is crazy. And at the same time, yeah. um, I don't know this, this thing seems like, like it was one of those things where it was almost worth it to try because the stakes are so high. Yeah. But it mm-hmm. seems like it's going catastrophically so far. I don't know. What do you guys think? I think the stakes are very high. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I was kind of, yeah, I don't know. I, I think they were going to have all these clusters. I think it's going to take a lot for these schools to actually close down. Yeah. Because, it, you know, every, a lot of these schools are basically running in debt. Um, and they're just kind of, they're, they're just trying to, they're hemorrhaging money and they're mm. just, just trying to, you know, stymie it a little bit. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. It's challenging because I mean, also I'm not like Andy, I don't do this professionally. And so I don't know how to effectively teach in person, let alone on, <laughs> let alone yeah. online. So I'm yeah. kind of happy that we're doing it in person. Obviously Montana is very different because we're you know, so spaced out here, but but still, oh, any college mean, has a concentration. Out, spaced out in the classroom, like you guys have. Well, you're that's in, too, you're yeah. in like the plains of the classroom. You have <laughs> somewhere in the mountains, somewhere in the kind yeah, exactly. Yeah. Somewhere in the in the tundra, somewhere in the taiga. <laughs> have, have you have you ever driven across Montana? No. Oh my god. Have you guys? Yeah, I've done it. Yeah. Oh really? I when I was in my early twenties, I spent a lot of time driving across the country. And wow. I would try and break my own record. So the fastest I ever did it was I did it in two and a half days, which is fucking crazy by myself. But oh my um, coast to coast, yeah, from North Carolina to Whoa. Seattle. Whoa, and so I God. drove through. It was like I drove from North Carolina to Madison, Wisconsin, and then I drove from Madison, Wisconsin to I think Bozeman, Montana, and then I drove from Bozeman, Montana to Seattle. Wow, but it was that's madness. <laughs> yeah, well, I was very young. I think I was. 19 or 20 or something like that is this when you were going to do the tree thing yeah yeah it was on my way to go become a tree planter in seattle yeah but montana is so fucking big it's like the worst state to drive through because it's like you know how they have like the mile markers on the interstate Mm -hmm. like starts at like 780 or something like that and you're like oh my god (laughs) like i have to count down (laughs) this entire fucking state um yeah i i i don't know it's it's such a complicated issue because um you know, there's also all the local economies that are going to get crushed. Like, mm-hmm. I imagine if the students were back, Missoula would just be devastated, right? Yeah. Although I think the city's actually been benefiting from people like us who are vacationing there. So mm-hmm. yeah. it's weird, actually. The home prices have been skyrocketing. Well, there. I buy that. I buy that people yeah. are buying, like, you know, yeah. they're like, oh, I yeah. can find a liberal I mean, town in Montana. Right. That's true that it doesn't necessarily mean the local market would be okay without the students. I don't know what the answer is. The university is seeing a reduction in enrollment of like 40 percent between 2006 and now. Whoa. Why? Why is that? Why? Why? Are people leaving the state? Well, there were there were a few different factors. One factor is there was a big rape scandal, college rape scandal here. Yeah. Which lasted over a few years, which, you know, that's not but so different than other colleges. Enrollment? Yeah. Like that just seems like, like that would have almost no effect on enrollment, right? Yeah. If it was well known that rapes would go uninvestigated on campus. Yeah, because so many schools have those types of Title IX investigations Well, that's going the on. thing, but I think it, it was featured in a 
Well, first of all, it was featured in a John Krakauer book. So it got like oh, yeah, a lot more press that. and became yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of like a symbol of it. So I don't know. I mean, that's what locals will blame. But there are other factors. Like, I think the school, first of all, just wasn't really focused on enrollment. They kind of expected that Montanans would just enroll here. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, and then another critique I've heard is that this school has much more of a liberal arts curriculum compared to Montana State. Oh, so they don't um, get the international. Yeah. Exactly. And Montana State went more like techie and new economy kind of thing. So like here they have a dance program and a theater program. And I think that's somewhat unique in the state. I like that. But... Yeah, that's nice for you. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, is the state population falling? That still sounds really weird to me that the state university it would does fall seem really weird. well that montana state's to, um enrollment has been going up over the same period uh, oh that's interesting huh yeah well uh, so you guys should move here and then we can all become professors is it, so is it true we got a listener question that there are no asian stores between like one of the dakotas and washington oh, yeah. state is that have you found that to be true so, yeah, I have failed to find an oriental food market here. <laughs> really? But, That's surprising. Yeah. You should go to Montana I State. I bet they have some. <laughs> yeah, Where's Montana State? Is it in Bozeman? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. That's such a long drive, um, which yeah, I know from long. my experience having driven across from Montana mile markers. several times. I don't know what the mile marker like s- subtraction is, but I remember it being like an insane insanely yeah. long amount of time um all right well our first segment today is about you know i think the thing that is in the air which is kamala harris um and yeah. there has been many dispensations distillations and uh dissertations that's my stephen a smith <laughs> <laughs> um, of of her identity and I, that's something i think that we should talk about and i think that there's three way that three ways that her identity has been framed um and excuse me the first is as a politician right i think a lot of that is discussed like who actually is she as a politician nobody really knows because They say Kamala Harris is a cop, right? That's the first thing that we hear. That's a critique from the left, which is true. Kamala Mm -hmm. Harris was like a district attorney that did have a lot of pretty, uh, let's just say, rough ways of handling truants (laughs) and marijuana offenders. And then the other side says, actually, Kamala Harris is the second most progressive voter in the Senate after Elizabeth Warren, right? Like that if you judge these things by how progressive her voting record is. She actually has the most progressive voting record other than Liz Warren. Um, So that part is confused, right? The second way that I think she's framed is sort of as a child of immigrants, right? And that Mm -hmm. that's sort of the people actually go in and try and say, well, her father is Jamaican, you know, her mother is Indian uh, from India. There are people who even go and say, well, her mother is Brahmin, you know, and her father was a black Marxist or, or, you know, Caribbean Marxist, I guess. And that, and that they try and sort of thin splice that. And the third one is the way that her identity is discussed is being a black woman. And that I think revolves around like her going to Howard, finding her black identity yeah. when she went to college. Um, mm-hmm. And that a lot of that conversation has happened around two ways. The first is like this you know, ADOS thing, which is like the or ADOS, which is uh, the African or American descendants of slaves um, conversation, mm-hmm. which has been on fire about Kamala for the past mm-hmm. few days. Do you guys pay any attention to that subset of the Internet? 
Yeah, a little uh, bit. But do you want to explain it a little bit? Because I think it, it gets confused and maybe some people haven't heard of it. Yeah. Okay. So the ADAS movement is an uh, online movement generally, but it is for the American descendants of slaves. The central figure in it is somebody named Sandy Darity, who is a professor at Duke, a professor of history and I think economics as well. I think he's economics yeah. primarily. Um, and that there is a, he is sort of the central figure around the reparations debate and has been for years. And that uh, his argument and uh, is that, you know, around a lot of this stuff is that there's a distinction between black immigrants who came generally after 1965, much like we did, um, and mm -hmm. the American descendants of slaves, and that we should have these distinctions and that these things get confused in when you look at things like affirmative action. And this is something I wrote about in my article uh, that I wrote about affirmative action, which is that if you go to the Ivy Leagues, which is where affirmative action is most applied, about 60 to 70 percent of the black students at those schools are, are either Caribbean or, or African immigrants. And the African immigrants are almost primarily from Ghana and Nigeria. Right. And so this is something that every black student at these schools knows. It's something that almost no white liberal people who don't know anything about this stuff know. Right. And so the thing that Darity is saying, and I think he puts it much more tactfully than some of the other people in the ADOS movement, is that affirmative action was meant to be um, for like the American descendants of slaves to deal with like the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. And that African immigrants who come over here generally to, you know, be doctors or to even to drive cabs and to have like a upwardly mobile type of life um, that they don't they don't necessarily count as being African American. Right. Like there's a distinction between African American mm -hmm. and, and and black. Yeah. Uh, and that Garrity has a group of people who um, are also in the ADOS movement. So one of them is like Yvette Kernel, right, um, mm -hmm. who at Twitter yeah. is uh, um, what, what's her, what's her <laughs> Brown, <laughs> breaking Brown. Yep. At breaking Brown. Um, and she, you know, like I would say that like, a that the, that they are much more forceful, I think is a kind way to say it about their yeah. delineations between black people and African-Americans. Um, but I, and so that, that's the ADOS movement. I, I, I think I, I think I described it pretty I mean, look, yeah. I'm obsessed with this thing, so I, if I if yeah. I misinterpret it, it means that I've been wrong for a while. Uh, yeah. But I think that's it's, about right, right? An argument, just to be clear, is it's an economics argument that the life, like accumulated wealth, that descendants of slaves have a certain amount of wealth over generations of exclusion that they've been denied. So it isn't so much like you're not black enough. That kind no, of that is part of their argument, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, I would I would say Darity probably sticks to the economics, but yeah. then it can kind of yeah. go into this toxic territory of who's like a white right. sellout. Yep. Kind it of gets person. very and it gets biological, which oh I it does really, really? Oh, wow. but I, well I think like in bad misinterpreted corners, right, right, but right, right. yeah, yeah I mean yeah, it, yeah. it's correct to say that for Darity it's primarily a question of as a matter of public policy who should be the beneficiary of reparative programming, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, including affirmative action. And so when I wrote my affirmative action piece, I actually talked to Darity quite a bit, you know, like I interviewed him twice. What's he like? He's a very yeah. nice guy, you know, like really yeah. responsive and, and very, cool. very smart. And I think yeah. that one of the things that, uh, that is interesting about this thing is that, and we can talk about this in the context of Kamala soon, but the last thing I'll say about ADOS to introduce it to the listeners who might not know about it is that like many things, right, the reason why it works, the reason why it works as an online 
movement, the reason why it like drives people like Joanne Reed like absolutely crazy and the reason why it, you know, just from is A <laughs> th- that there is a large element of truth to what they say and that it is a it feels like a hidden illicit truth, right? Like it's like the type of thing that white liberals don't think about and it feels mm-hmm. new and it feels like kind of hard edge and it feels almost cool to say, hey, there is this distinction because there really is a distinction, right? Like the life of somebody mm-hmm. who comes over uh, as a to work in a hospital as like a doctor and the wife is a registered nurse or flip those two around, you know, like the wife is a, re- is a doctor, the husband is a registered nurse, whatever, sends her kid to uh, private school and the kid goes to Harvard on an affirmative action, you know, like as part of like the affirmative action program, like that does feel wrong, right? Like in, in some sort of elemental way, like it's like you can make arguments like, well, diversity is diversity, but nobody actually believes that because the people, the spirit of affirmative action was to help a kid whose grandparents went through Jim Crow, basically, you know, who lives in a house in a red line district, right? Like that is, that is the point of it. And so, that's why right. I think but it you, works. And you just gave but you and you just gave the kind of their best the best argument from that point of view. Uh, but of course they're I mean, in other words, the harder case is if you flip the class dimensions, right? Oh sure, but so you, I don't yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. but we can talk about it more as we keep going. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Um okay, so Kamala. Um <laughs> first let's first talk let's talk through all three of these ways of thinking uh-huh. about her. And the first is as a politician, right? And who is she as a politician? What do you guys think? <laughs> I've been brainwashed by the Bernie left to think she's a cop and the worst person, but I'm open, <laughs> yeah. I'm open to it. <laughs> <laughs> You're open to it? <laughs> yeah, I, I do remember she was for, she for like two days, she was for Medicare for All last summer, which yeah. to me suggests that at least she can see where the wind is blowing in a way mm-hmm. that Joe Biden can't. So, you know. Yeah. Best case scenario, she can be pushed. What win, though? She's, she's from California. She's like the vice presidential candidate. You know, I think she actually maybe picked the right win. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Well. Um, Tammy, what, Tammy what, yeah. what do you think about uh, Kamala's identity as a politician? <laughs> I agree that she's a cop. Um, <laughs> I, I understand uh, a lot of our fellow leftists' disappointment with this decision because I think the feeling it was... Biden, he's an empty shell. He'll do whatever, you know, the world wants him to do or what he thinks will be advantageous for him. And yet during a Black Lives Matter uprising, he chose a prosecutor. Right? But he also chose so a think, black woman. And he also chose a black woman and an Indian woman, which we'll get into. <laughs> you know, and so I think, but I think a lot of people kind of focusing on her record are feeling like, damn, you really didn't even listen to us, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, on the other hand, I, I agree with what Andy was saying, and I find some solace in the fact that I think she can be pushed and pulled and she doesn't really have ideology. Yeah. For instance, I much prefer her to Susan Rice or anyone from the Clinton right. days. Yeah. Because yeah. I think they actually, like, love war. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm with you on that. Yeah, yeah I, I think that, I don't think that Kamala, I think Kamala Harris is somewhat like, uh, Pete Buttigieg in a way, you know, although much less like personally offensive to me. And, you know, like I just find I just hate Pete Buttigieg. No, you hate, I Pete, hate Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg. But like Kamala Harris, I think, is another person who is very ambitious, like many politicians are. And she sure. th- was told at a very young age, you're the sky's the limit. You know, like you can do whatever mm-hmm. you want because like you're this very you're good speaker. I don't think that's deniable. You know, she's actually a great speaker. Yeah, she's. 
has amazing so presence, right? Like you yeah, see her, yeah. like the first debate, there's reason everyone crazy because you're just like, oh, this person feels like a president, you know, like yeah. as much yeah. as a black woman Absolutely. can feel like a president. Like this one, yeah. She looks like she, if they made like a TV show with a black president as, as on, on TV show, it would be like somebody exactly like Kamala Harris. Yeah. Um, and, but I think that she doesn't really have any sort of real ideology at all. I agree with you. And I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but you know, like if you remember the beginning of her campaign, I think that she thought that everybody would not identify as a cop. I think everyone, she thought that everyone would look at like what is a very short Senate voting record and say that, oh, this person is super progressive. You know, this is basically Liz Mm -hmm. Warren. Um, (laughs) But like, you know, what she miscalculated is nobody actually cares about how people vote or pays attention to any of that stuff. And so she, at the beginning of her campaign, she was like, I'm a populist, you know, and she was like, and then she was doing like videos where she was like, disseminating like uh she was like oh when i was at howard i was listening to this rap music do you remember this like you know this takes me back and so she was running very much i think as like a black sorority howard populist right Mm -hmm. which is not (laughs) who she is because you know she kind of dipped i I don't know it's also kind of like obama in some sort of way right where there is this floating element to it where it can become almost anything it can go in and out Mm -hmm. it can be like jeremiah Wright, or it can be you know like the guy at the guy at harvard um or columbia so she has all of that and i understand why the democrats thought you know if this is like that's a good thing being like obama is a really good thing electorally yeah yeah. Um, definitely similarities in their life stories are actually pretty striking yeah yeah Yeah. Googling, you know, reading Wikipedia this week. I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So they thought they had, they thought that they had another Obama, the Democrats. And, you know, she just, I think her prosecutorial record was too bad. You know, it was like, Mm -hmm. like, it was actually a little bit too bad for her to really be able to push off. And um, her campaign, you know, if you read the Times reporting on it, they did that big story about it. It seems like that, plays out or that is what happened like she never knew what the campaign was and that her advisors were always fighting with each other right yeah, yeah that's, right. that's exactly actually what yeah my takeaway was that is why the campaign imploded because she didn't have a message and she didn't know what she wanted to say mm-hmm. yeah uh, why why do you think she was so you know pro arrest for small crimes was it like to appease the sort of nimbyish element in california that's kind of always there like the sort of pro three strikes suburban crowd or well she started in san francisco right and i don't think like as the attorney general or working in the da's office in san francisco um you know she was pro-immigration and uh she was pro-sanctuary city stuff and i don't know why she did all that stuff but i imagine it was to appease the sfpd which is like basically you know, uh, Nazi organization, uh, that's too strong, for me, <laughs> a fascist organization <laughs> in, in an extremely liberal city, right? And so the DA's office has to interface a lot with the cops. And I think that she thought that that was what was politically expedient at the time and that it wouldn't haunt her in that sort of way. But I don't know. I don't, I don't think that she actually cares about marijuana smoking kids, you know? I mean, can you imagine? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I just cannot imagine that she cares about that. She claimed to smoke on the Breakfast Club interview where her dad eventually repudiated her. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. She said, I'm Jamaican. Of course I smoke marijuana. <laughs> she said that. <laughs> and, her, and her dad was like, 
your relatives are rolling in their grades right now. <laughs> <laughs> Her dad is such a badass. That's also what she has in common with Pete, right? Yeah. I love that. Their that. dads are like super radical. Yeah, I have, <laughs> I have a whole them, theory yeah. about that, about the children of like Marxist scholars and why they become the way that they are. But we can we can hold off on that. Um, okay, so we all, it seems like we all agree that as a politician, she's unformed, right? Like that she can still become optimistic. She can still become anything. And it is interesting to be a president, vice presidential nominee and still not have people really know who you are. But I think mm-hmm. that the enthusiasts, like we get all in our own bubbles and we hear all these, you know, all of us follow every single leftist on Twitter and they're just like, she sucks. I hate her. <laughs> but for the majority <laughs> of people, they kind of like her, you know, I think. Yeah. And they, they want to like her and she can convince those people of who she is. And so I hope that she goes back to her original plan, which was to be like the super progressive populist. I know. But yeah. it's probably great. not going to happen because she's running with Joe Biden. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, the, nah, but, well, come on, Jay. Well, <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I do think she was the most compelling speaker in all the debates. It's just that she said nothing. She's amazing. Know? But like, yeah, she was definitely like the coolest person on stage every time. Yeah. And she like, you know, as like a debate nerd and Andy, I want to know your opinion on this was she was the best at debate ing. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way that Ted Cruz <laughs> in 2016 was the best at like pure debating, you know, where he would like <laughs> he would like bait people into stuff and he was you know, like he was really good yeah. at sort of cutting people off at the right time. Like he would I could I know I I could see why Ted Cruz was like a national championship debater, even though he did parley, which as we know is a coward's right. form of debate. Yeah. But you know exactly. <laughs> it's still hard to be the best college parley debater, I think, right? Yeah. Um This yeah. is really what our podcast is about. <laughs> <It's just> about <laughs> debate. Yeah. I remember emailing my debate friends who we normally talk about the NBA, but we were watching the debate. <laughs> she was I was like, she gets the most speaker points tonight. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> She's she was good and she um you know, she was, I think the only time she messed up was when she was like, she remember when she was saying, Liz Warren, do you join me in saying that Twitter should cancel Donald Trump's Twitter account? And I was like, you need to hire a new staff, you know, like whoever, whoever the staffer was who suggested that you say this and like really push it on you, you need to fire that person immediately because that, and then, um, and then she wasn't very good at dealing with Tulsi, you know, because I think, oh, I yeah. think that she, oh, right. I think she probably hated Tulsi so much that she was like, I, I don't even have to deal with this woman. She's crazy. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually met Tulsi Gabbard once and I rode in a van with her at Standing Rock and she was perfectly very nice person. Yeah. Um, it was me, Tulsi Gabbard and uh, Shailene Woodley in a van together. It was very strange. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. That is bizarre. <laughs> a little weird. Um, all right. So uh, <laughs> the next identity that we should talk about is this. And this is the one I think that we are the most interested in is this yeah. idea of child of immigrants. So, Tammy, you are the child of immigrants as well. Is there something <laughs> about Kamala Harris as the child of immigrants that also, you know, speaks to you? Uh, not really. Andy, you are also really? a child of immigrants. Does it does it speak to you at all? Yeah, a little. I have to admit, a little bit. And what- she she's probably. Uh, I was thinking about this. Her trajectory as the child of two immigrant like grad students, basically in the '60s, is not really. So only a few years off from my oldest cousin. Um, okay. On my mom's side, which was just like wave after wave of, you know, oldest uncle all the way down to my parents from the mm. '70s to the '80s coming to the U.S. for grad school, basically. 
and then having their kids. So I could see, you know, in an indirect way, yeah, I could see how, and especially growing up in California, she's probably of the same milieu as, you know, my family, or the oldest cousins of my family. Yeah, I actually, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm with you, Andy. I, I actually do find it, um, I don't think that it changes my opinion of Kamala Harris at all, but I'm like, is Kamala Harris closer to my life experience than, um, you know, uh, Joe Biden? For sure. You know, is she, <laughs> is she closer to my life experience than Herman Cain? Yeah, you know, like for sure, right? Like it, these are the, these aren't really questions. Like I imagine that Kamala Harris, growing up in Berkeley, California, in what is a you know Indian American family, and going to school in a college town, grew up very similar to the way that I grew up. You know, I bet it's not that different, and the, I bet the yeah. expectations were similar. You know, I bet the sense of rootlessness was a little similar. The difference was that, you know, Kamala Harris is black, you know, uh, despite, you know, yeah. what the ADOS people want to say. She reads as black. Like, I don't think most people have. If you ask 100 people and you put a picture of Kamala Harris in front of them, they didn't know who she was. And you ask them, what race is this woman? Like, 100 of those people would be like, that is a black woman. Yeah. yeah. No. That was Jamel Bowie's point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. And Jamel is right about that. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. no, only the most racist, like obsessive race scientist would be like, I think I see a little Indian in there. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Everyone else would just be like, that's a black woman. So in that way, she uh-huh. did have a different experience. Um, well, what do you think? Like, what do you think that this is going to appeal to people? Because, you know, there's a lot of stuff that has come out and I can read it off. But I, you know, like, I think that our listeners will probably know about it, but you know, there's a lot of voters, for example, in swing states who are parts yeah. of these identities. For example, there is a lot of Asian Americans in Texas. They make about 5% of the voting population. Um, there are Caribbean people in uh, Jamaican people in Florida, for example. Right. And mm-hmm. so do you think that the identity of Kamala Harris, this sort of Jamaican Indian black identity, not the black identity, we can talk about that later, but the Jamaican Indian <laughs> child of immigrants identity is going to make any sort of political difference? I think it, best case scenario, it'll make people a little more excited to vote. I mean, I think the populations we're speaking of would vote against Trump anyway. They would exactly. vote for whoever is on the D line. But right. yeah, I think there's probably more excitement because she does, you know, appeal to all of these different identity categories. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, I was looking up those numbers earlier. I was surprised that Texas was 5%. Um, and then comparing it to the other... Have you ever been to Houston? Houston's like... Yeah, yeah. no. I, yeah, my cousins are from Houston. I have cousins in Dallas. I, so I know about those ethnic enclaves. Um, but I didn't really... But in you know, total, right? It's such a big state, but I think the population yeah. is so dense there in Austin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that it's it matters more there than in like Michigan or Ohio or Pennsylvania. Um, mm. Just Asian American that category, but then the question is: yeah, do you, Are Chinese Americans going to be motivated by the Indian American? Category? Well, that's what I want to ask. Like, so, like you know, like in yeah. Viet, uh, you have a bunch of like Vietnamese people in right. Houston, for example. Are Vietnamese people going to think Kamala Harris is part Asian American? <laughs> in the same way that they're like jeremy lynn is asian you know like i don't i don't see that happening so much so i find some of this demographic stuff to be weird and then piling on top of that you know because tammy i know that you said i agree with you that the majority of those people will vote d on the line but you know that guy david shore who got fired who like set off all that sort of like a lot of i i i i I agree with people who think that it is ridiculous he got fired because a lot of his research is very interesting even if i don't agree with a lot of his prescriptions um, you know, he was talking about how uh, in 2018, 
there is there was a real backsliding of support for the Democratic Party amongst people of color and most specifically immigrant groups, right? Latino and Asian mm-hmm. groups did backslide a bit in terms of their support. Yeah. Do you think Kamala does anything to shore that back up? Like, is it enough? Like, did, is it a deciding factor at all? The answer to me is very simple, but I want to know what you guys have to say. <laughs> I think it's less her and the experience under the Trump administration that allows immigrantness to be a salient category for a lot of people. So I think in response to your Vietnamese and East Asian, you know, solidarity with Kamala thing, I think there's there's going to be something about her not being sort of purely, quote unquote, American that is helpful here. Okay, so you do think it'll matter. Uh, A little bit. I mean, I don't know. You know, it depends on the messaging, because this news has been a week old and I've already been like really surprised and taken aback by how how heavily they're leaning into this, because I don't really recall this last summer. No, I agree. Uh, herself, like herself, right? As, in, in, as like the Indian American, the Indian immigrant made good in this country. She did right? lean and, into it in San Francisco for obvious reasons, right? Yeah. Because San Francisco okay, yeah, has a lot sense. of Asian yeah. people. In it yeah, yeah. And <laughs> has a lot. It has an actual whole Asian political power structure, right? Like, uh, yeah. and that um, she leaned into it much more back then um, for yeah. her first campaign. I think she really leaned into being a black woman. And yeah. I think she's leaning back into the immigrant part because I think they do know that, you know, these margins that can be made up in these meaningful states, like if she can right. somehow convince people that she's Asian, you know, and, right. that, and that those Asian people say, mm-hmm. I'm voting for the Asian people, you know, I'm going to go out. Right. I wouldn't have voted before, but I'm definitely going to go vote out, vote out now because I want an Asian vice president. I don't know. I don't know. Who, I don't know that no, I know. Is. I agree with you. I think the answer is yeah. no. But I think that that's part of their strategy. And that's because yeah. I think the Democrats don't understand identity at all. And they're well, so I would say, but you remember Obama's very famous race speech, I guess, where he kind of disavows. Um, sure, am I right? Yeah. Past, yeah. Right. But it was like such a big turning point. Infamous. And, yeah. Right? He, he, like Kamala, was like an amazing speaker, which is, you know, a huge plus for him. I could imagine her giving a similar speech where she's like, I'm both black and Indian, or neither just black, neither just Indian. And I think a speech like that would appeal mainly to like like energize like white liberals, yeah, who like this idea of like how complex culturalism and yeah, yeah. And I, I can I can kind of actually see like that might be um, a value added, um, and being ambiguous could actually be to her advantage for some voters. Child of immigrants, I think, is the way they should go, right? Like they shouldn't say she's Asian; right. <laughs> they should right. say she's child of immigrants because like Asians are not the only immigrants, right? And that I think that. Um, and I, I think that if she can tell an inspirational story, which I think she's fully capable of doing, she did it with being bust here in Berkeley. That was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, uh, you st- say what you will about Kamala. Like that was like, like that was like the big moment of all the debates and she was able to tell that story. Right. And, that, sure. and that, that's not a story that is right. going to be broken down by like people sniping at her being like oh but she's from a brahmin family she's like, come on you know <laughs> like what are we even talking about here yeah. like fine i agree with you you know like that yeah. that uh that all this stuff happens but like she's still the child of immigrants and guess who guess who cares about who else cares about the fact right. that she's brahmin other than you right. like three other people that's it <laughs> <laughs> um 
I, I, I don't know. So I, I think we're, I think we're all in agreement with this as well, except for Tammy who's like, I don't give a shit, but Andy and I give a shit, <laughs> and, but we're all saying that it could matter and that we're somewhat excited about the idea that she could be putting out a pro-immigrant narrative, especially yeah, in these times. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Well, and I, I think like, I mean, we can talk about this a little later, but I think also the way that we've kind of chopped up the categories for ourselves and that we've observed this being in the media. It also speaks to how ill-equipped Americans are at talking about mixedness yeah. mm -hmm. and about mixed race identity, you know, cause yeah. all these like choices are super weird. And, you know, a lot of our friends and our kids are going to be mixed race growing up. And that's just going to be a huge part yeah. of the American population. And we still have like no vocabulary or no capacity to like actually digest this intellectually. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah, that part drives me nuts uh, because I don't um, and the school systems in California the, the official category is like two or more races and uh -huh. it's like <laughs> like on the census yeah and all the schools are like 35% two or more races you know and I just wow. think like yeah. <laughs> like at, at the point it gets over 10%, you need to come up with like a better term. <laughs> but also at the point where it gets over 10%, we have to figure out how to talk about this as a as like a yeah. country better than we do, which is that we just assign them these. Do you, you know Lee Fang, like when he was talking? Yeah. Okay, so when Lee Fang got canceled, um, you know, he uh, wrote that very the, long apology. Yeah, he wrote this very long apology. But in the apology, I found it totally fascinating. First of all, the apology was like very long. and um, mm -hmm. But he talked about... And, I, you know, like, I, I think Lee is a great report. I actually don't have any problem with Lee. And I think that, uh, you know, honestly, like, if I had to ch I'd just be like, I don't think that Lee should have been, maybe they had some back history or something like that, but I didn't understand. Yeah. We don't have to go into any of that. But what he said was that growing up, Hapa, you know, like half Asian, half white, he always felt mm -hmm. like he was rejected by both sides. Right? And this is a real narrative within Hapa kids uh, that you can see the second you wade into Reddit, right? If you go to like R Hoppa, mm -hmm. it's just all about Elliot Roger, right? It's like the darkest mm -hmm. subcommunity that you can find. Wow. And that I, I think realize. that the reason why that is happening to a large extent is because we just ignore it. We don't call them Asian, you know, like Asians do kind of exclude Hoppa kids. They're like, oh, well, you have like Hoppa privilege because everyone thinks you're hot or something like that, you know, which <laughs> is a real thing. <laughs> it is a real fucking thing. <laughs> Tell me if I'm lying. It's really true, you know, and uh, they get sort of fetishized in this very strange way, right? Um, especially yeah. by, especially by white yeah, people. Right. And they are trying to figure this stuff out. And the Kamala thing was driving me insane because I was like, there's nobody who is offering any sort of reasonable definition of this that feels inclusive, right? Like, it's just a bunch of people fighting over who gets to claim fucking Kamala Harris. <laughs> just yeah. Like, a shit. <laughs> like, let's claim someone cool, you know, like Karen O or somebody <laughs> like that, you know? We don't, we, know. we don't have to fucking claim Kamala. <laughs> we don't have to fight over Kamala Harris. Um I don't know. What do you think? Like, do you think that like I, this is something that I want to talk about the show? It's just like, how, how do we get forward on this issue? You know, how do we get forward on the idea yeah. of mixed race people, given that there's such a huge part of there and it's going to be increasing yeah. part of the population? Yeah. I mean, we failed, obviously, around Obama's identity, too, to have like an actual conversation around his mixedness. And I think he also was so uncomfortable with it. Right. I mean, he never he obviously like talked about his mom, but even though she was the person who raised him the most, he, the, his memoir is about his dad yeah. and, you know, he really was in the black community. And so I thought that was really interesting. I, 
one transition question I want to ask just before we move on to this is like, what happened with Ados around Obama? That didn't really exist that, back then. And, and the but I way. think that's, but I think that did help trigger the sense that this guy is not one of us. Yeah. Okay. And he and he wouldn't be he wouldn't qualify for reparations. Right? Yeah. No, absolutely okay. not. Yeah. So. Right. Um, I mean, Obama also grew up in Hawaii, right? Which is like where right like now. race is so ambiguous anyway. But um, I'm sure in Hawaii, everyone thought he was black, right? And that yeah, for uh, sure. For sure. the one time he's Barry, Barry Obama, Barry, Barry, yeah, he's a yeah. playing basketball. He sounds like Steve Saylor right now. He always calls him Barry Obama, and, and, and <laughs> has basically pointed out Steve Saylor, who, if you guys don't know, if the listeners don't know, is this notorious racist, and he, uh, but he's like the number one poster on the internet. If you look at any New York Times article about race, he's commented like fifty times. Really, on all of my articles, Steve Saylor oh, like so com- comments, and he, you know, he basically makes this argument, which is he's sort of like Yvette Carnell, the opposite in that like a lot of what he says mm-hmm. has this like kind of like illicit feel of truth, you know, where one time he wrote, he wrote this whole blog post about me once and it was about how, um, oh, wow. how like Asians like me pretend to be liberal because uh, they decide that it is socially better for them because when they go to elite colleges, they're surrounded by white liberals. And so they can't be conservative, even if they're raised in conservative, socially conservative households. And so all of Asian American okay. liberalism is basically this lie to try and promote their own yeah. careers, which like has an element of truth to it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Richard Spencer said that. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Those two are, those, oh, yeah, really? those two oh, are like, uh, you know, they're, they're fellow travelers. Um, <laughs> but uh, why do we know this? Okay. Obama, I, I know all about Steve Taylor. I was going to write a profile of him, but he refused to interview. He refused to participate. Um, oh, because he, smart guy. But I, but I mean, like, I was like, look, Steve, like, it's going to be an interesting look into. I, I was like, I think you're responsible for most of the alt right and also Trumpism, you know, and uh, and I think you're much more influential than people give you credit for. And he was like, he was like, well. And I was like, obviously, it's not going to be a fawning profile of you, you know, but I'm interested in your ideas. And he kind of yeah. played ball for a little bit, but then he, he stopped. Um, Interesting. But the uh, – <clears throat> why are we talking about Steve Saylor? Oh, Obama. Oh, yeah, sorry. Obama, Obama, Obama did talk about it in, when his grandmother died, and that was about it, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the other thing that we wanted – uh, the other <laughs> – we were talking about it because we were wondering – how Kamala is going to actually read, right? Okay. Yeah. Right. As black as the third one. Okay. So, yeah, that's the third category of identity, which I think we should discuss mm-hmm. in terms of Kamala, which is, you know, black woman. And I think that's the most <coughs> obvious one. That's the one that has been put out the most. Although, weirdly, I think I agree with Andy in the sense that I heard much more about her being the child of immigrants than her being a black woman than I expected, right? Yeah. Um, and there's a big you know, argument on Twitter between Jamel Bowie and Thomas Chatterton Williams about this, but like, <laughs> we don't have to go through oh, that. Oh, really? Yeah, well, that's, oh, what, that's how Jamel wrote his column based off of his, like, argument. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Um, but Everything is based on Twitter feuds, apparently. Well, I just missed that. Jamel. Yeah. But there, there, a couple of these articles came out, like, the day after the announcement. Yeah. So you, you can tell, right, they've been researching yeah. this in anticipation. Yeah. And this was, a, this was intentional. I think Jamel is, does not write off Twitter as much as other New York Times columnists in his That's defense. Good. But this one, yeah, I think the, he I did. Like yeah, stuff, so. Jamel's, I like this Jamel's, I think, you know, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I think Jamel is their best columnist um, <laughs> and the most thought-provoking yeah. and, like, you know, the most rigorous and interesting to read. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, 
in this time, right, as, uh, as we say when we reference both coronavirus and the national protests, like, is mm-hmm. it, what do you think about Kamala's sort of presentation as a black woman? Because it seems like that actually is one that is contentious, you know, whereas Child of Immigrants, I don't think it's that contentious. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be interesting if, so Jamel's, I think Jamel's sentiment is probably going to be the mainstream one that as long as she's coded as black in the U.S., then it doesn't really matter whether her dad was born and raised in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I think I'd be what I would like, but I don't know if it'll actually happen, would be a more interesting discussion about what is the relationship between black Americans and um, black people in Jamaica or the Caribbean and how they are. How are they connected to the U.S.? I think it's an interesting learning moment or teaching yeah. moment. But I don't know if um, I don't know what political game that is. But I'm I'm personally like I think it's interesting that her who her dad is. I, I, mean, I think her dad is really interesting for obvious reasons. He's a <laughs> Marxist economist. So. <laughs> right. um, uh, but I, yeah, I don't know. I I think it would be I would be I would think it's a little bit, a little bit of a letdown if they try to package it as safe and familiar as possible. Like mm-hmm. there's nothing, there's no, you know, trying to tell, like, I guess to speak to um, people who think about race in terms of white black terms, right? That she is a familiar figure. She's just like, or not different from the other sort of black, U.S. black type politicians that you know, and they try to kind of tame the Jamaican aspect of that part, right? Yeah, because maybe politically that's the safest thing to do. But I kind of, for you know, intellectual political reasons, I would like to see it expand. Mm -hmm. One of the things that has been discussed, Tamia, and I know your opinion on this is that you know there are articles that came out about Kamala that talked about how she didn't really think about blackness until she went to Howard, right? That she had grown up in Berkeley and Montreal, I believe, right, and that she had, um, you know, that she had grown up in this Indian family and that. You know, most of the people that she spent time with were probably white or, or, or Indian. And that when she went to Howard, she had this awakening and that, you know, that she became like black at Howard. And, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm making quotes, not air quotes, like to, uh, to connote sarcasm, but, you know, air quotes to say she became black. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I'm very tired today. But no. do we do we know why her like has she talked about why she went to Har- to Howard in the first place? I think that she wanted to explore this part of her identity, you know. Yeah. And I think that uh, Tammy, what do you think about this? Like, you know, is there something? Is there a way to talk about her? I've had a conversation with a couple of my black friends about this um, mm-hmm. a lot um, over the past few days, and it's like, well. What do you make of this? Like, how do you discuss the fact that she kind of culturally grew up Indian American, you know? And then um, is it a form of erasure to say, well, she's a black woman, you know? Is it a form of, is a form of actually obfuscating part of her past that might make her more interesting as a person? You know, is it a dishonest way to think about somebody to say, actually her entire upbringing, she was an Indian, you know, she grew up in this Indian household, but, uh, but, you know, now we're going to just think about her as black. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I wanted to complicate that reading of her having, I mean, I know she said that, that she became black when she went to Har- Howard, but this whole idea of like, why did she choose to go there? And the fact that she was reading as like 
a black young person in an Indian family. I mean, she was going to Chennai every summer. We've learned it through her biography, right? Yeah. But she went to Zambia. This, That's and she went crazy. to Zambia. I know. Well, it, when she was younger, right? And I. Yeah. But like, I guess my point is like she was in Berkeley and in India reading as a black person in an Indian family also. So I think she was digesting that identity, you know, and so some of this returns to our conversation around like mixedness and how we're bad at talking about that. But also, I think I was thinking with over the in the debates about her blackness, about something that um, I had mentioned to you guys, and I think I quoted him, this guy, uh, Lewis Gordon, who's a philosopher around race, had said to me yeah. in an interview, which was, um, you know, that he always really liked the term black and identified as black because it had an international element and a historical element that there was continuity um, that he really loved. And then when kind of African-American was introduced to replace or synonymize in the 80s, this was his reading, that that was erasing that and kind of introducing a respectability politics and a nationalist politics mm. that he didn't like. Now, Eidos uses those terms differently. But, yeah. you know, what I think that, like, Kamala's identity kind of brings that up in a way that I yeah. think is really, like, wonderful. That's, I think, what you were saying, Andy, too, that it leads our imagination right. and our historical understanding in productive ways. Yeah. So that in her Blackness, I think, is so fascinating. I hope that if we yeah. talk about her Blackness, we talk about it like that. Like in yeah. this, you know, historical um, continuum. Mm. You guys probably know this, but I was surprised when I learned this. Do you guys know what percentage of African slaves across the Atlantic came to the U.S.? No, 10%. 5%. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. tiny. It's a drop in the mm. bucket compared to how many wind up in Haiti and Jamaica and Trinidad, right? Like, so yeah, wow. it's, it's always struck me as bizarre that... <laughs> who was that guy from Fox Levin or whatever who was like... Well, she's from Jamaica, Mark so who knows if she even had slaves in her yeah. family? You know, as if like <laughs> yeah, yeah, people in Jamaica were born looking the same as African or you know, West Africans. Like, but I kind of think that a lot of Americans really don't know why mm. there are like black people in cool runnings, right? Like, they're just like, oh, that's just what Jamaicans <laughs> look like. Yeah, and and so you know, I think this would be a great, I'd be a great learning or teaching moment. But I don't, mm-hmm. I think for, for perhaps Jay for. The strategic reasons we're mentioning, and might they might just downplay it. Well, yeah, but I, mm-hmm. I, also, I look, I, 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 t- I agree that that would be the best case scenario. But I also think that it is too, it is a little too far from the reach of how they're going to do the messaging of the campaign, right? And I don't think that they're going to talk about like Pan Africanism or you know, need for like <laughs> no, sol- course, solidarity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, oh I God. find this moment for Kamala to be, you know, to be one where I do sympathize with her quite a bit where you, you like Tim, like you're saying, like it, you, it, I saw pictures of Kamala when she was at, you know, in school in Berkeley, you know, it's same mm-hmm. thing. It's just like, it's not a, you know, like anyone who looks at her is like, that is a black woman in a city at the town yeah. that had a lot of black people in it. Right. And that the people that she was, she might've grown up in a Indian American family, right. Or immigrant family. But when she was at school, you know, I'm sure that everyone at the school thought she was black, right? And that um, yeah. she had a hard time with that, it seems like, as anybody would. And I think that when we have to be pretty big tent about people going to college and sort of finding their identity if they're mixed yeah. and sort of deciding to identify with one part of for their sure. identity. And yeah. um, for I think that the sort of purity test, it's not really purity testing, but, you know, this idea that, like, you have to, 
acknowledge all of this. Like, I think she does acknowledge it, right? She did a whole video with fucking Mindy Kaling about like Indian food and, and pickles and shit. <laughs> so like, it's not like she, she it's did. not like she runs from this sort of stuff. This is the most pro Kamala uh, Harris uh, <laughs> like, podcast there is. Maybe she'll tweet it out and we'll get a bunch of new listeners. But um, <laughs> but I don't. I just to say, I I think that that. Um, I don't think that there's any reason to doubt that, that, you know, or to really cast doubt on the way that she identifies herself. Although, you know, I think that it is interesting that she used to identify differently when it was more politically expedient for her to, Mm. to, to do so. Um, that how how has it changed? Well, she was much like we talked about. She was much more like uh, talking about her like Asian um, Indian immigrant past when she was uh, running for office in San Francisco. Oh, right. um, okay. The the last part that I think that we should talk about here is this, you know, I think that there's a the 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 bat the sort of contentious side and the part that makes I think a lot of us uncomfortable about this sort of conversation is that um when you bring up somebody like Kamala Harris and you say she is a black woman, right, the other side of that is that she is like no longer an immigrant and that she's uh and that she right. Yeah. is part of the politically black thing, right? Like what I think some right. people said, like there's a political way to be politically black. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I agree with or disagree with, but it's certainly like something that's out there, and that, um, you know, I, I think that it does bring into question a lot of things that are going around. Like so, like right now there is this, uh, the just Department of Justice came out and basically told Yale that they're discriminating against Asian Americans and whites, which is just continuation mm-hmm. of what was happening at Harvard. This has set off this huge Twitter fight as it obviously was going to. But, you know, this is where I think the Eidos part is interesting because Eidos has come out and basically reiterated their point. And I think, you know, like Nicole Hannah-Jones also said it, which made Eidos go crazy because Eidos really doesn't like Nicole Hannah-Jones because they think that Nicole Hannah-Jones steals all their ideas, you know, and doesn't give them any credit. <laughs> and so, oh, yeah, yeah like that? Yvette okay. Carnell, like that's her main problem with, with Nicole Hannah-Jones, basically like, like you see. stole all of our stuff, you know, and you don't give us credit because you're like the fancy person in the New York Times and we're like the internet trolls, right? So um, <laughs> <I see laughs> Nicole came out and basically said that what they should do is like they should have a affirmative action program for a special admissions program for the descendants of slaves. Right. And that right. basically what that, the flip side of that is that they should not have an affirmative action program for black immigrants. Um, and this set off like day, you know, I think we're on day three of this. Right. And um, <laughs> Nicole is very game to like, uh, to, to respond to people on Twitter. And she is not somebody who yes. just, you know, she's not one of these people who's just like, oh, well, you know, I'm above all this. She like gets in there and she like argues with people. And I think that like something that she wrote on Twitter, I want to read because it reflects something that was in the 1619 Project's essay that she wrote, which is that Twitter mm-hmm. is probably the worst possible place to discuss the complex and nuanced dynamics involving <laughs> race. I agree with this. But I swear <laughs> the way we've been taught about slavery and U.S. apartheid has made it impossible for us to even have the same conversation discrimination does not equal slavery. You can't enter a country and its existing caste system but pretend you've entered it with a clean slate. You inherit all of it, the majesty of the Declaration and the stinging legacy of slavery. To argue addressing that legacy is unfair to your aspirations as as a nation you chose um, is wrong. I think so much of this thinking is because Americans, whether natural born or naturalized, learn so little about American slavery and its legacy that it is just easy to brush it off as being akin to any other discrimination groups have faced. It was not. 
a thread to come shortly, which I will not read because I don't have it queued up here. But uh, what, what do you think about this? Wait, so just to clarify, so is she saying actually that black immigrants do inherit that legacy and live it? No, no, that they okay. don't. She's saying that they inherit the same debt that is owed to the black descendants yeah. of slaves. The opposite. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she's saying, yeah. Yeah. Or basically anyone who comes to this country is indebted right. and should pay into a reparation yeah. system the same way yeah. because this whole country was founded on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's, I mean, she's also speaking to Asians here, obviously. She's speaking to Latinos, I think, as well. Right. Um, like, w- what do you think about this provocation by Nicole? Oh, man. I mean, I, I actually <laughs> think <laughs> the suggestion of this special program for the descendants of slaves, I have no beef with. And actually, that seems like a fine idea to me. But I don't, I'm not interested in what I think she's often interested in, which is ranking oppressions. I do fundamentally believe she is interested in that. And I think, you know, maybe that makes sense if her ultimate objective is to clearly delineate a reparations program, including affirmative action, because then she wants to say that. But she doesn't quite say, I'm going to do oppression Olympics and it's appropriate. So there's always a little bit of like a disingenuous gloss, I think, in in some of this, you know? I mean, for instance, I would bring up Native American people and- Being here in Montana, that's the largest minority group. And it's one that I feel a lot of deadness to as somebody who's here, you know, and I looking at their outcomes and their economic mobility in the U.S., it's devastating, you know. So I would suggest that that is a group that also needs attention, you know, and that's I'm not even going to get into like Latinos who don't identify as indigenous or Asian people right now. But I would just say, I think um, I don't know. I don't I don't often agree with her reading of race generally. Okay, but what about this part, Andy? Uh, To argue addressing that legacy is unfair to your aspirations in a nation you chose is wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, it sounds like, um, I know we've talked about this, right? It sounds like she's basically addressing upwardly mobile immigrants who have come to this country. Um, Yeah. Right, the, the gloss, the stereotype would be you come to this country, you study really hard for... Uh, you know, to get into a good school and you therefore kind of kick the ladder for everyone else and you don't kind of think about, you know, Asian immigrants, right? East Asian immigrants who, um, I mean, I mean, the context of this is she, the, the, with the Yale, I don't know if it's a lawsuit or the Yale case or in the Harvard case, what was, um, should Asian Americans feel the burden, the historical burden of slavery or not? Mm-hmm. And Asian Americans in particular, because that's the that's how it gets set up in these right. in these lawsuits. And it does sound like she's kind of saying that you chose to came you chose to come here, um, and also like kind of this you know it's kind of a you know what's the word like dismissive like just because you want to make a lot of money doesn't mean you don't have to um, you know deal with these issues. Sort of like glossing that you belong to a privileged class. I, I want to say and, here, yeah, and I want to clarify, yeah. I notice a lot of reticence from you two to speak about it freely. We are just <laughs> like, there is nothing about this. I think there's about Nicole specifically. It is about the ideas that she is putting on line and also on in the 1619 project, right? In, in her essay, in the 1619 project. And I think it is possible to have a good faith criticism or a, or, or a conversation about it without falling into like, you know, feeling like you're, 
you know, against the basic arguments. I also agree with you, Tammy. I think that they should go to a, a, a ADOS, like a Descendants of Slaves, based affirmative action program. And the problem with that is that, you know, that, and this is what the people at the admissions office will very quietly tell you, is that it's very hard to find kids who are qualified, you know, enough kids who are qualified and who can also pay part of their tuition to come to those schools, right? And at the elite, yeah, at the elite schools, schools right? The- so like what they would rather have is that they're just like, well, you know, I only see race instead of I don't see race. <laughs> like I only see race. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, what's wrong with this, you know, Ghanaian kid who's, uh, you know, went to Phillips Exeter, he's black, right? Which I agree the person is black. Um, so we'll let, we'll let that person in because, you know, like they have the academic credentials that allow us to keep all of our test scores high, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like because they mm. care desperately about being as right, exclusive right, right. as Princeton, as Rankings. exclusive as yeah. Yale, as exclusive as Stanford. And so um, if like it comes out that after four years or five years that Princeton is much more selective, then Princeton will, you know, benefit in some way that, that is imagined in the heads of the administrators and the college presidents. Because honestly, who like nobody actually thinks that way, but they think that way. Yeah. Um, so I agree. And we go ahead. Are we are we focusing on the elite schools because affirmative action has been just so wiped out at the public colleges? Well, there's no affirmative action at like, uh, you know, Texas A&M or something like that, really. I know. That's what I mean. I mean, there it's obviously much more consequential than at this handful of Ivies that we're no, talking about. No, it's not, though, but... because it does, they don't need to do it, you know? They don't, need to, they don't need to do affirmative action at the same level as the Ivies. Like, so once you go down to, like, you know, NC State or East Carolina University or, uh, you know, schools that are on a second or third tier of admissions, like, the, the, it is much easier for them to fill their classes with, Black and Latino students. Um, well, at some public colleges, but certainly not others. And so, I mean, I'm much more concerned about that. But I think it's, I mean, obviously the the precedent is not good. No, no, I, I, I get in terms what you're of what saying, but it's do. just like the truth is that the place where it matters the most and the where it's applied the most, the places where the most pressure is on schools to actually not just let in tons of Asian kids or white kids are the elite schools, right? So like like people are like, well... And the UCs? Well, they... UCs are elite schools. Okay. Yeah. So you're- <laughs> Wait, but I mean, like, you're only talking about four. You're I only, mean, some of them you're are. You're only talking about four or five public universities, though. You're talking about, like, Cal, UCLA. You're talking about, like, the University of Virginia. You're talking about University of North Carolina, maybe. University of Michigan, right? Like, and Michigan, all of those yeah. have had their own affirmative action fights, right? Mm-hmm. Because those are the schools that... A, people care. I think there's a little bit of a misconception here where people are like, well, what about like affirmative, like I care more about affirmative action at like, let's say like, you know, like Western Carolina. I don't know why all my examples are from North Carolina, but like I care <laughs> much more about affirmative action at like uh, UMass Dartmouth or something like that or, or UMass No, but Lowell. I think it's a concern at like University of Washington, at Irvine. Like the, it's not just the handful University of- University of Washington is a pretty elite school. I bet at top. Washington State it's less- Okay, I mean, now we're just, I think it's a semantic thing, but you <laughs> know, you I, I, I guess my point is like, I don't think it's just, I think there are concerns also at other tiers of education around this, but I, I, but I also was interested in clarifying for the audience, like why we're focusing on the Ivies. We're fo- so I okay. What- that's what I'm saying. We're just focusing yeah. on the Ivies because yeah, yeah. it matters more at the Ivies than at these other schools. Like that, that's just factual. And then for the schools in California, it's not an issue because they can't do affirmative action anyway by law. By right, state right, right. law. That's, University of yeah. Texas, same thing is very selective school and they can't do it because of state law. Right. So in, in the end, you do get funneled down to these, prestigious institutions um to discuss it so uh huh wait where were you going before we, I, i've lost my place again yeah sorry <laughs> <laughs> like, i don't want to argue about this but just to clarify <laughs> where why we were doing that um, yeah that the, the um 
Well, oh, yeah. So the question the admissions of like, officers. The admissions officers are generally just thinking, hey, we should allow. Uh, like we don't really care what what type of black person that that comes into these mm-hmm. schools, but in fact they yeah. very much care what kind of black person that comes in these schools because they are picking a hugely disproportionate amount of like uh, of like middle class and upper middle class black immigrants. Um, and I don't know, I I don't I don't think that anyone is comfortable with that. You know, I don't think that anyone thinks that that's great. I don't think if you asked a single person or, you know, white liberal walking around here or walking around Missoula, like, hey, do you support affirmative action? They said yes. You're like, well, did you know that at these institutions that like, you know, 7% are are immigrants, they would say, oh, wait, I just thought it was like some kid from Detroit or something like that, right? Like who like grew up up (laughs) around Eminem or something like that, right? (laughs) Um, That's just not true. And so I think that, the part that I would agree with with Nicole is that I think that she's right about that, right? Like I don't, and mm-hmm. you know, if that I don't think that's a xenophobic program. Um, mm-hmm. I think maybe some of her framing of it might seem xenophobic, but I don't yeah. think like the I don't think that the program itself is xenophobic. I think it is restoring what affirmative action right. was supposed to be about. Or the the tweet that you were mentioning earlier, she was kind of. Um, in a sort of galaxy brain move, reframing it as legacy enrollment, right? Legacy enrollment for institutions like Georgetown and Yale that have on the record like profited from slavery. Mm-hmm. They in particular would have an allotment for descendants of slaves. And that's that's there's sort of like a poetic justice in the way she framed yeah, that. Yeah, right? I thought that, that was cool. That too. makes a lot more yeah, sense. No, I thought that was cool. Yeah. Because, uh, if you, I, I, go ahead, Tammy. I'm sorry. That'd be great. Uh, no, I was just going to say that'd be great if they experimented with that. I mean, Georgetown already has that kind of like half step program, right? right? For people who are documented on their books. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. So. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, any school that was founded before 1860 has <laughs> slave money on their hands. Yeah, basically. Right? Like, For sure. Um, and all these Ivy League schools are 100% founded before then. Yeah. So um, every yeah. single one of them is, like, I, I actually think yeah. that that Absolutely. solution is, is pretty compelling. Now, the other part of mm-hmm. the, of what she's arguing, which is that, um, that, that, and this is something that she also wrote in the 1619 project was essentially that like that Asian Americans and immigrants to the United States came mostly came to the United States after 1965. And her framing of it is that basically the 1965 immigration act was signed because, uh, as an extension of the voting rights act in 1964. And if you read a lot of the documents back then, it does seem that way, right? Because you have people like RFK saying like, well, we must like extend the, the logic and the spirit of civil rights to our immigration laws. And Lyndon Johnson also says that, right? But like, if you read anything beyond the superficial (laughs) statements, that's not what it was about, right? It was in response to the fact that the United States had been in war in Asia for like 30 straight years, right? Mm -hmm. And that, um, that is the part where I find, you know, that I think that I would have some, uh, disagreement with what she's saying, because essentially, like, I don't know how else to read it except to say like, Um, you're only here because like we fought for ourselves and, you know, somebody else decided to let you in. And so your concerns are behind ours in line, right? Like, I don't know how else to read it. Like I try and find charitable, more charitable ways to read it. I just don't know how else to read it. Like, do you guys have an alternate read on that? No, we've been discussing this. I don't know the history of that very well. So I think a lot of listeners are also like me curious about that. Because uh, that is that is a statement that's in, for instance, in the 1619 project, yeah. right? That mm-hmm. the 65, the Heart Seller Act, was just the extension of civil rights. But the implication of that yeah. is like you, you know, like like right. you, you owe, us. owe us, right? Like how else do you how else how else could it be read than that? Yeah, 
No, yeah. I, I mean, I think that is my frustration with some of the ideas that she articulated and that I was kind of explaining earlier that I feel like has this kind of ranking function, you know, or kind yeah. of gatekeeping function that I'm really not so yeah. down with. And yeah, Jay, I mean, I think you were starting to get into this territory of it's wars in Asia, but it's also the Soviet Union and the fact that we were in a Cold War and the U.S. had an interest in yeah. not looking bad, yeah. you know, and fighting, right. you know, this kind of communism, basically. And, you know, saying, oh, no, we're the welcoming country right. and we're the country that brings in all the races, you know. But no, I mean, I think there's a reason why people are coming here from all over the world. A lot of times it's because of the U.S. military engagement in those areas. The propaganda, yeah. like, from, uh, you know, after, uh, like, and a lot of this was put out by Japanese, is the Japanese as well, but a lot of the propaganda, anti-American propaganda in Asia was about the Chinese Exclusion Act. You know, it was about, like, totally. it was about yeah. horrific crimes that the United States had put, like, done against, you know, lynchings against uh against people who come over here for the gold rush, for example, in the 1840s. Like that was a propaganda. And part of the, a lot of the reasoning was like, we can't lose influence here if the propaganda is just about how America hates Asians, you know? (laughs) And we have Mm -hmm. these like extremely racist laws on our books. We should get rid of the books. So the idea that like, you know, Lyndon Johnson was like, well, and RFK were like, let's just take this one step further, you know? (laughs) And like, let's let's let in all these Asians. It's just a hist- it's a historical, <laughs> you know, like and so that's part yeah. of where I get frustrated. And like, I think that the the actual wording of this does matter, which is just like and Tammy, like I, this, I'm very like this goes and this is something I'm very appreciative that we have this podcast and that we're in a lot of conversation because I don't think it's something that would have really occurred to me before we started talking for like a couple hours every week. And this idea like the your your you know, like you chose this country. Right. And like I that that really is like like I don't understand yeah. that at all it's just like you know like i don't i can't think of a more upwardly mobile type you know stereotype of an asian than myself right like my sister is like a fucking surgeon <laughs> i'm like a journalist and uh grew up in very comfortable middle class family and uh, my dad's like you know uh, like went to harvard right and so like uh we have like uh but like you know my pa- my pa- my grandparents like were you know, slated to be executed in North Korea. Like, they were refugees. Yeah, they are refugees yeah. in South Korea. My grandparents walked across the DMZ. You know, like, there was a lot of discrimination. Against you. And this was a proxy war, <laughs> yeah. right? Korea was yeah. a proxy war yeah. that was named something no else. To go yeah, in. my parents you know, were so. born in a war zone. Like, my mom is born the day that MacArthur, like, invades Seoul. You know, like, they did not yeah, grow up wow. wealthy. You know, like, they grew up in, like, yeah. shacks by the Han, by the, by the river. You know, <laughs> basically, like, literally shacks yeah. by the river. Um, now because of, you know, the American interest in like cultivating types of academics and like having partnerships within like, you know, like, uh, like sciences with these other countries, you know, my father was able to come here and that is a benefit. But the idea that he chose to come here because of, you know, out of like a free will and it was just like, Hey, you know, I don't really like it here anymore. So where are we going to yeah. go? You know, like, um, yeah, <laughs> I'm just going to pick on the map, you know, like we could go to like Mexico, we go to Canada, <laughs> let's go to the United States. Like that's absolutely not true, you know? And, yeah. um, it's way less true for people who are not as, you know, at, like for, for, for people, for example, who are like bomb the shit out of in fucking Cambodia, you know, like, like they're yeah. just, they're just choosing, you know, like, and I find yeah. that framing to be, like, yeah, I don't know. I just find it to be like, like just mind boggling because I'm just like, well, like, do you do you not think that other countries 
that do you think that people just come here because they like decide to come here to make money you know i don't know yeah yeah and i think this is so much i think this is very clearly articulated in the scholarship of like latino professors, sociologists and historians who've been talking about push-pull factors for a long time, you know, and been charting Mm -hmm. all of the American interventions and wars throughout Central and South America that have brought people here, you know, and I think Asians, I think we talk about that less, but it's true all over the world, you know, and these are not, so these are not accidents. And I think also just on the 65 thing, I think it's interesting too that, you know, it was quite, I think it was quite shocking to the lawmakers of that, you know, who ended up coming here. Yeah. Yeah, through like family chain migration, right? So like, it's not just Asians, but it's also Africans. It's also Caribbeans. Yeah, you know, this is not this is yeah. not a plan <laughs> to achieve racial justice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, right. Yeah, yeah the, they, the they're like trying to hit the delete button. I think at some point. <laughs> they're like, oh Whoa, no, this no did chain not go the way that I, we thought <laughs> it was. We have so many sisters. Yeah. Like, so oh why no. Why did you bring your <laughs> bum ass brother over from? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, He's not a doctor. Don't, we don't want him. <laughs> like, what's he gonna do? He's a janitor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want him or his kids. Like, get them the fuck out of here. Yeah. Like, yeah. so. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I the thought process was because most Americans are white, most immigrant, uh, most family immigrants totally. will, also, will also be white. Yeah, and they they exactly. actually there are interesting documents from that era where they are basically saying like, well, America's pretty racist against Asians, so why would a bunch of Asians <laughs> want to come here? Which is you know a question <laughs> oh, really? I would like to ask my well. parents, for example. <laughs> <It's hilarious>. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, they had a point. It is weird that they that they all came here, unless you think oh, but they're getting bombed in the other place, you know? Yeah. So. Um, I I actually thought, you know, this has been like a contentious thing that has been discussed everywhere. And I, I, you know, and I, you know, I think that it actually was helpful in some way because we do talk a lot about like, you know, Asian American identity and what it could be, what could be like an expansive way that could also include, for example, Hapa kids, right? Because that's something I'm very fixated on for obvious reasons because of my kid, but like, um, (laughs) you know, like I don't want my kid to grow up in uh with the state with without any advances in the ways to think about this thing you know and like mm. if there's mm-hmm. a way for her to understand why i'm here why my parents are here i think that will help yeah and so it seems like if you adopt some it's, tammy this is your idea that i'm just stealing right like that if you that if you no. if you adopt some sort of sense that well we're all like and like and obviously this has been said before you know in the late 60s everything like that if there is like some sort of idea <laughs> that everybody is anti-imperialist right that 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 people are suffering that there is some sort of history running back like maybe that's a better way to approach the identity than outside of you know than what happens here you know because what mm-hmm. happens here is mm-hmm. so disparate like Wait, yeah. say that again. What happens here in the United States between different groups of Asian people like has very little to do in common, right? But like, but you're but saying like Korea Asian identity should be founded upon on what happened in Asia. Yeah, like what if it was just like if as a Korean, I'm like, well, you know, like the fucking United States like bombed the shit out of my parents' city when my mom was born, you know. <laughs> And then maybe yeah. some Vietnamese person, a Cambodian person, maybe not Vietnamese, because Vietnamese people might be like, yeah, I was fighting on the side of the Americans, you know? But like the Cambodians <laughs> would say, like, you know, would be like, oh, you got bombed too, you know? Like, so, like, like isn't that an itch? Like, would that, is that a way forward? Like, I don't know. I, I talked about it some with Viet, Viet Thanh Nguyen, which and we have a podcast coming out where I'll elaborate it more, but I wanted yeah. to ask you guys, is that a way forward? 
<laughs> That's complicated because uh, <laughs> my parents are on the kind of wrong side of a lot of debates back in Asia, but I would like to think <laughs> that I can get along with a lot of Taiwanese Americans. Yeah. By right. wrong, I didn't like commit atrocities or anything, but you guys probably are aware of sort of similar to the North Koreans coming down to South Korea, like the mainland Chinese go to Taiwan, but yeah. unlike the North Koreans, they actually like do these terrible things in Taiwan uh, to impose power on there. And Taiwan is working through its own issues. Mm-hmm. And my parents are probably just like the kind of oblivious, privileged. I mean, they themselves, kind of like your parents, Jay, like they came from they, uh, let's say, materially had nothing. Like, my mom was also born as a refugee in Hong Kong before mm. they moved to Taiwan. But, like, they, I don't know. I've, I've kind of tried to suss this out myself. They had education in their background, and they pretty quickly readjusted and came to the U.S. and all yeah. that. Mm. So, putting, calling them a victim yeah. is tempting, but also calling them the colonizer is also tempting. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, well, your you're, you're version of like, Kamala Harris is prominent territory here. <laughs> Tammy, what do you think? What if we started... There's something liberating about coming to this country, though, and being able to just... You know, yeah. forget about the past. Maybe Andy's out then. Maybe it's just maybe it's just people <laughs> who who's, who whose parents were bombed by the United States. <laughs> Tammy, you're in. Are you, Tammy, is your family from? Uh, did, are their roots back to North Korea? A little bit, yeah. But my both of my parents were were born in South Korea. Okay. So I mean, yeah. So it's it's complicated, but yes. And, uh, but I I was going to say to this point, I think though that Andy's roots in Taiwan, our roots in Korea, of course, they do share the fact that both of those countries have had historically kind of neocolonial relationships with the United States, you know, so there's some, that's the, our generation, that's the real story that they were, uh, the free countries that the United States, uh, was the word cultivates or, you know, defends against Mm -hmm. the communists. But then it seems like that. And that is, yeah, anyway. So I think, I think that is the, and the, and the other flip side of that would be like, in, if you're a South Korean or Taiwanese person in the 60s or 70s, you might not want to come to the US, but the earning power, the, like, they're just economic structural advantages to moving overseas that, like, the question of choice is, like, not even a real question, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's just, like, like, you just got to do this because you can make 10 times the amount of money in this country. Yeah than right. in your current situation and you don't own land in, in the place that your family has just fled to. So yeah. choice is like not the question. Like you're just, right. just going to do this if you, if, if, if you get the fellowship or if your relatives get, you know, the visa for you. Uh, right. The lottery winners. Yeah. I mean, I think to Jay, to what you were talking about for your daughter and for their generation, I mean, I think reading back to, even more recent histories of, of what we're talking about here, like the neocolonial presence of the United States, but and then maybe a step back, you know, and maybe, I don't know if you talked about this with Viet Thanh Nguyen, but, um, you know, Japanese empire throughout Asia yeah. and how that was like, you know, basically the West allowed that to occur and wanted, you know, the, the sort of um, Asian exceptionalism that existed there. I mean, there are definitely these shared trajectories, even though the specific histories are quite different. Um, but, you know, I think there's also a fair bit that we share here. Okay. Well, I, I, Tammy, I agree with that. Um, and I think you're right. Like, you know, like your, 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 your sort of dissertation or your uh, 
your your distinction <laughs> your of the is, is correct. The 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 next the follow up question I want to ask before we get to the next topic is like all right. But the fundamental thing is just like okay. Right now we think about like what has happened to us here, right? And that's where questions like Vincent Chin come out, right? Like uh, we Vincent yeah. Chin was killed, right? Or uh, or Korematsu comes up, right? We say like the United States allowed the internment of Japanese Americans. Like that is one question. The question we don't really ask, and this is something that you know, I think that Viet brought up, and I, you know, I, I, his his take on it was really fascinating to me. It's like we don't really ask, like, hmm. why are we here? And you know, I think more people are like, so like Jill yeah. and Yang's book is about why are we here? You know, like when when you mm-hmm. it, she wrote a book about like every immigration policy up into the heart cellar. Um, it came out a few months ago, and I, you know, it's something I think that our listeners yeah. should read. But, um, you know, like when she's giving interviews about it, she's just like, I want to know why my family is here, you know. And mm-hmm. I think that that actually has more moments or more that question has more po- potential for solidarity and actual solidarity, even if it is abstract in the sense that like we didn't live through it. Mm-hmm. But we yeah. only have to go back a generation of our parents to really understand that. Right. And I think part of the reason why it's not <clears throat> happening is because Asian parents, not stereotype, but Asian parents don't talk about that shit ever. It's so like, true. You never talk yeah. about that shit. I had to like pull it out of my parents for the book I wrote, yeah. you know, like, but I yeah. like, grew to 40 and didn't know, you know, the answer to that. So, yeah. Um, well, what, what did they say when you eventually got it out of them? Well, like, yeah. they told me this. It was just like that, you know, like my grandmother like walked across the, mm-hmm. the DMZ by herself. My grandfather yeah. was smuggled out, was slated for execution and was smuggled out of North Korea in like a fish truck, you know, and then my yeah. grandmother oh, had wow. to follow him afterwards and then you know my mother's father like was started out just basically selling junk to that he salvaged off of like the air, air the uh, army bases and Americans. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and would yeah. sell it back to americans but he actually was like pretty good as a businessman for them but then when the park regime mm-hmm. came on like everything went away you know like like he was mm-hmm. he was sort of cast out and then they moved to the United States because one of their friends from North Korea had moved there and said, it's great here. Like, you know, it's a country yeah. where like, you can pay your own taxes and they trust you, you know. And for that yeah, was the yeah. whole reason. Like, that was it. So then they, you know, yeah. my mom's sister is very smart and they had my mom's sister study to be a nurse so that she could come over and one of like the nurse visits uh-huh. at the beginning. Yeah. Like, We're all chain migration people, you know, like following yeah. her. Right. So, yeah, um, same. It's uh, that sort of stuff like we just don't talk about. But I actually think that if you discuss that and you ask Kamala Harris why is Kamala Harris's like family like her Indian side of the family here I bet it's very similar you know like I bet there is a similar mm-hmm. story there and so I'm wondering if that is like a more organic way for us to like try mm-hmm. and figure mm-hmm. out solidarity between groups instead of pretending that there's anything particularly yeah. in common between Indian American and like you know let's say like Taiwanese American Americans yeah. in America I don't yeah know. and her dad too right why did yeah, he come yeah, from yeah, Jamaica for sure. right yeah yeah this yeah. Is my- yeah, that someone on Twitter pointed out, and I, I, I can't give them credit because they have one of those Twitter handles that are like unpronounceable. Like, not it's not a dirty word. I just have no yeah. idea what it means. But uh, Kamala's mom came to study nutrition, the sciences, and you think, oh, yeah. nothing to do, that nothing to do with what Donald Harris was doing. But in a way, they were actually both of this moment when uh, immigrants from the post-colonial world, right, the third world, quote unquote. We're coming to the U.S. to study development yeah. in, a, in a big sense. There's economics, of course, development economics. But Shamala Harris's MA is about protein in chapatis, right? Like the, in the bread yeah. oh, that wow. they yeah. eat in Amazing. India. 
So she was interested in development, like nutrition development. Oh, wow. For India. So was she going to go back? So then, like, was her plan to go back? Uh, I don't know if that was her plan, but I think, but her, her initial entry point into her science life, which she becomes a cancer researcher. And that's yeah. right. Yeah. All you're going to hear about her in this campaign is that she was a cancer scientist was development. It was like, how do you help the nutrition of the third world? Oh, I and love I the think, chapati anecdote. Amazing. <laughs> and that, and that, so like that similarity between her and Donald Harris is coming wow. from the third world and trying to study why the third world is a third world is really interesting to me. And that's something you wouldn't expect if you just think in terms of race. Yeah. Like they black, clearly black found Asian. some affinity with one another because they had a child who's <laughs> vice presidential <laughs> yeah. nominee. But it started with the chapati <laughs> yeah. research. Right, right. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, you know, this is a very half-formed idea that, um, you know, I, but I think, I don't know. I think there's a lot of, I think that the, the, the one part, the one thing I will say is that I think that that idea will almost certainly be the rejoinder or the rebuttal to something like what Nicole Hannah-Jones said, right? Which is like, it's a choice mm-hmm. and you need to get in line if you made a choice, right? And I think right. that that really rubs a lot of people the wrong way because they're just like, I'm just fucking here, you know, and like, I don't really know why I'm here, but I think the investigation of why you're here would make it much less seem like much less of a choice. Right. And that that would lead to a lot of, uh, you know, it's, it, what we're confronted with there is a statement of nationalism more or less. Right. Like it is the flip side of like, if you don't like it here, then leave. Right. And that, you know, anti-imperialism is a, very, very natural response to, <laughs> to nationalism. Yeah. Now, I don't know how to yeah. navigate that because, you know, like all the you know directions are different, but I think that the functions, this is debate brain, Jay, the like argumentative functions are the <laughs> same, right? Andy, as the other debater, do you agree? Hammy, as a lawyer, you can speak up as well. I don't know what the hell y'all are talking about <laughs> now. <laughs> but what, what's the function? What, what functions I mean, like, are the same? you know, like if you map it out as a pure argument, right? Like it is like the... The reaction get out of this country yeah, right? yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah there's that and there's, there's nationalism in the sense of like the word country is doing a lot of work in that sentence where um i was just thinking about like hawaii was not a saint until 1950 if you moved to hawaii are you is like are you supposed to be burdened by the past of what happened in you know south carolina 300 years earlier that's kind of mm. no that doesn't make any sense to anyone except for this nationalist fiction that mm. people in Hawaii and South Carolina have anything in common, which they don't really. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And parts of the West are the same as well, because like in San Francisco, for example, San Francisco was like one Mexican guy owned a lot of San Francisco, right? um, And that was, (laughs) no, it's true. Like he was the, he was like the mayor of this area. And, um, you know, like that doesn't mean that the country itself did not benefit, you know, in the formation of the found, it did not benefit from slavery. But if you want to just draw a straight line into the past, right, like there is, uh, you know, that actually is reflected by a lot of the people who also live in California, that they draw the line yeah. back to their past in that sort of way, in a way that yeah. they feel much more organically than this idea of like, well, we have to route it all through this one idea. Um, right. Not that we shouldn't route it through that idea. We should. Right. But like. Well, that's why that legacy idea made, makes a lot more sense. Right. Instinctively, like schools that were founded on slave money have to. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we're all about that idea. Okay, our next our next topic is the post office. I don't know why I said it that way. I'm trying to add structure to our show. Um, Tammy, what's going on with the post office? 
So I've been extremely aggrieved about what's going on at the post office. I don't know about you guys. You may already know that I love the post office because I've sent you postcards and I love Mm. snail mail. But, you know, the post office has been um, a punching bag uh, for privatizers, for the right wing for many decades. And yet it's this incredible institution that is, um, you know, has provided mobility to women workers and to work minority workers for so many years. And now Trump is trying to destroy it. in, you know, as having inherited a legacy that goes back to Nixon. But anyway, um, so you guys might have seen that Trump basically said over the past week, yeah, I want to fuck up the, the post office. I'm not going to give them any money to fix what's going on there because I don't want there to be mail-in voting. Yeah. You know, so it's an attack on democracy very directly with regards to the November election, but it's an attack on also an institution that is one of our greatest treasures in a in a country that doesn't have very many good things going on in our welfare state. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I'm very, very concerned about this. And I think also because we talk a lot about race and class here, Uh this is an institution that is key for the kinds of people that we care about who are coming up through the system. So I wonder what you guys, what's on your guys' mind with respect to the post office. Just for some context, Tammy, like, you know, the post office has 669,000 employees. I don't know why I'm telling you this because you're the one that posted this, but I'm reading it as if I'm... (laughs) No, please, this is critical. I'm like mansplaining the thing that you put back into the... The thing that you researched back to you. You're like, Tammy, I'm not sure if you knew this, but the post office has... I like, I'm reading it for the first time. uh, 669,000 employees nice the 41.7 percent are women 62.1 percent are white 27.2 percent are black 7.8 percent are asian and 11.3 percent are latino actually you know this uh, mm-hmm. nicole also you know not to make the whole podcast about her but you know uh, <laughs> she actually made this argument which i found very convincing uh when the first attacks on the post office came out which is that you know part of the reason that this is happening is because uh, the post office does employ so many black and brown people yeah. um, and that they don't think yeah. that these totally. jobs are important. I think she's 100% correct on that. You know, I, Absolutely. Uh, There's yeah. always been a dog whistle politics around this, around like lazy workers right. at the post office. Like, who are you talking yeah. about? Yeah. You right. know who you're yeah. talking yeah. about, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, and it's not just like who they employ. It's also like there are parts of this country where people have no access to like UPS yeah. or FedEx. Totally. Um, and it isn't profitable. To deliver mail to those parts of the country absolutely not yeah uh but that for precisely for that reason the government should lose money and provide the service to people right totally. otherwise the, the the gap between has and have nots gets wider and, and it is a job that many yeah. people can do without like benefits of uh you know like sort of th- having like uh, access to education or access to access yeah. to money or family money it's not you don't have to do the fucking harper's internship to become like <laughs> to become a, to become a postal worker and it is a it is a it is it's a place where you get a lot of benefits you know and that that you can build yeah. a life around you can build some sort of economic stability totally. and um yeah. it is maybe the only institution that employs this many people in america that that can say that you know that where it is this mm-hmm. place where a lot of minorities work and that um, it's true. Like I, I, I can't actually think of anything else except the fucking military, you know, which also has a lot of. Yeah, yeah. actually, yeah. those are that's a good comparison, I think, for sure, in terms of like, you know, what you need to enter and, and how diverse it is, you know. And yeah, so I just 
I find this heartbreaking and infuriating, and I really think this is something that the left needs to mobilize around right now. Yeah. And so if people are interested in taking actions and contacting their electeds, this is really, this isn't yeah. really important. And if I think, you know, obviously November is making this more critical, but this is a, this is a right. ongoing thing. Do we, do you actually think that I, I saw some pushback today on Twitter and they could just be like right wing commentary saying that the Trump like people, whenever Trump tweets something, people just go crazy. But this Trump suggestion is not. There, there's like there might be a conspiracy theory element to all this that Trump isn't actually going to give her to the post office in time for November. That it actually has at least enough funding through next year, which raise which I only bring this up to say that even if you put the Trump stuff aside, everything else you yeah. talked about is really important. So- and we shouldn't necessarily just be like reacting to this crazy sure. Trump tweet. Yeah, I have a hard time figuring that out. Tammy, do you know any better? I have a hard time figuring out how real this is. I see the photos of like post office boxes on the back of flatbed <laughs> trucks. And I see people yeah. freaking out about it. And I understand that this hist- country has a long, long history of voter suppression, which I am not unfamiliar yeah. with that I actually think is like the, you know, like the worst crime that the country can commit. Right. And yeah. That, um, for everybody who says, I don't care about the Harvard affirmative action case because I fucking hate Ed Bloom because he's a guy who pushed through uh, Shelby County, Holder versus Shelby County, yeah. like and gutted mm-hmm. the Voting Rights Act. I totally, I'm on board with all of that. Just like, I actually don't even care about the merits of the case at some point because I'm against that guy, right? Like, I'm fine with that. Right. Fuck that guy. Yeah. And so, um, even though, you know, <laughs> in interviewing him several times, he's like, you know, like most conservative legal activists, like totally like, you know, uh, very nice um guy who's very who like yeah i can't believe you sat down with him yeah but you know like tim you know like these like not everyone is fucking seb gorka you know actually the majority of these people who like do these things like they're very good at talking to to reporters and like you know they're totally they're they're very thoughtful and they'll like invite you in and they'll like give you a beer or something like that and they'll make you know like those (laughs) trucks because like you know they understand that you are you are adversarial to them right and so Mm -hmm. um but uh how real is it like i i can't tell i can't tell if people are looking at photos of like bail boxes being taken out and just freaking out or not my sense as a yeah. skeptical person and as a journalist is that probably it's like not as real as people are saying it is but i don't know it depends on where those mailboxes are right i mean i was just having a conversation with some people who've spent a lot of time in eastern montana where you're talking about you know, an entire 40 mile area that will have like a one room schoolhouse still. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you take out a mailbox there and you got nothing. Right. right. So mail in yeah. voting doesn't exist. There's no voting then. Yeah. You know, are there are there some, you know, are, is the post office under this horrible, you know, post master general that Trump has instituted doing some stuff that's kind of ostentatious and trying to scare the libs? You know, you take out a couple of post office boxes and New York City. Yeah. Okay, maybe that doesn't make that much of a difference. But no, right. I think this is this is big. Yeah. This is But do you think it's uh like, I agree with everything you said about the 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 need to have the post office and the sure, social yeah, function it plays, right? And I, I guess the point is like even if you don't believe the Trump conspiracy, like the Trump yeah. conspiracy is just like this crystallization, this sort of spectacular one theory, but it's really a symptom of the the long-term trend of yeah 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 it I is. agree with that I just right. wanted to know but, if, if we no but I think there I think there could really be a legitimate threat yeah for in November the fall. as well but yeah. it does seem like there's been such an immediate pushback and even backpedaling 
that yeah, makes I me think so, that. Andy. Well, because like uh, some yeah. of it was in Portland, and I was like, well, if they're picking states to take the mail out of, they're picking the wrong states, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Oregon, Oregon isn't gonna flip because you took some mailboxes out of Portland, you know. Like right. if it was in so, Florida, right. or if it yeah. was in Texas, or Arizona, or Michigan, yeah. or Pennsylvania, I'd be like, holy shit, you know. But as far as we yeah. know, it's not yeah. like the and. And if Republican voters tend to be older, are we sure they're the ones? Well, yeah, I think that's the other thing that they're they're concerned about. But look, I think the proof that maybe something is happening is that Trump has said it's happening, you know, and we we might as well just (laughs) believe him. But uh, the effect it might have, I'm not sure. The bigger question, I agree with you, Andy and Tammy, is this move towards privatization. Like every single day I think about, you know, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't have this book that like at the center of my mind, but like. There's just so much shock doctrine stuff that's happening, right? And the, the way yeah. that Naomi Klein in that book describes what happened to Russia, you know, after Yeltsin, mm-hmm. where everything became privatized mm-hmm. and, you know, she like yeah. through like a Milton Friedman type of thing. And that thing, like yeah. giant industries are sold off for like pennies to private industry, which didn't do anything. Same thing happened in Chile, right? Um, mm-hmm. That reminds me a lot of what's happening here. And when, you know, I worry about it when like, fucking you know andrew cuomo is like saying google is going to help us rebuild the new york city public oh school system and she's like fuck you <laughs> you know why yeah. don't you rebuild yeah, the totally. fucking new york public school system like oh why don't God. you do it governor yeah. you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and uh the 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 post office thing has like you said has always been the big shiny apple for those guys right like they're just like yeah. what if we got rid of all this these union jobs what if we got rid of all this I know. like these yeah. high-paying jobs and just paid amazon like serfs to go around and do it anyway instead yeah. um right yeah it's concerning well and you know and i mean naomi klein is just so right on this and i think the first step is always the cost cutting you know you cut the budgets and mm-hmm. you you make these things down to the bone where they don't function properly and then you have an excuse to cheaply privatize. So, you know, that's really what we're on watch for because the budget cuts to the post office are are debilitating. Do you think it's more about my sense? I guess the reason why I asked this question is because my sense is that it's probably more about the privatization attempt than it is about voter stuff, you know? Um, Yeah, exactly. And that that part should be more scary. Do you think that ends, though, in November? Like, that's the part I can't figure out because it's not like Andrew mm. Cuomo is not a fucking Republican, you know? Like right. he's, I know. He's, uh, he's, he's a Democrat. You know, he's Democrat in the same yeah. way that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are Democrats, right? Uh, yeah. And that, uh, I don't know, once you start gutting a country and looting it, it, it's not like it stops ever, right? Like the history has told us, at least, you know, based on my reading of The Shock Doctrine, which I listened to in the car, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> I signed up for Audible, and the only book I listened to was uh, I listened to two books. I listened to uh, Imagined Communities and The Shock Doctrine. Yeah. Oh my God, you're such a nerd. I love it. <laughs> I know. Also, who is the reader for you that know, book? Uh, like... it, it's not a good reader, but the, the, That's not, it, it's literally yeah. because like I can't read. And uh, and I really wanted to read both those books, and I started reading them in print. And I was like, I'm too stupid to read this, so I have to like actually I have to listen to it on tape. Wow! <laughs> but um, you know, like sounds like you retained it. Well, the history, I mean... I, outside of just what Naomi Klein writes about the history of this sort of privatization and gutting of stuff, like it's not like it reverses yeah. itself ever, right? Like, so is Joe Biden just going to continue the same stuff? I think it is. I think it often is better under Democrats. I do. I think, I think obviously it just comes from how much popular resistance there is. For sure. For sure. You've already seen Biden 
act more left than he's ever been in his life, right? Yeah. Just in response to yeah. the, the Bernie threat and all that. But it also has to do with the historic relationship between unions and Dems, which <clears throat> helps a lot yeah. in these situations, right. you know? Yeah, and I will say that maybe Trump has done everyone a favor with the post office and making it a Trump thing because, like, otherwise yeah, nobody, you guys are right. nobody else would have yeah. given a shit, you know? Because all, yeah, if all Trump right. was saying was, like, don't you hate going to the post office, you know? Then everyone would go, yeah, I fucking hate that shit. You know, why yeah. does it exist? It all I do is send emails, you know? Like, uh, like I, yeah. all my communication is through, <laughs> through chat. Um we don't need to give well, all that money there. But now that he's like, you know, now that he's turned into like, I'm going to get reelected by getting rid of the post office. Everyone's freaking out about it. Right. Yeah. Maybe he's like a, maybe he's like an op for the post office. <laughs> you know, oh yeah. <laughs> it's a long yeah, con. Like, yeah. like really long. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that'd be so good. Um, yeah. Andy, I'm sorry to be to cut you off. What are you going to say? Well, one, one, one connected thought to all this is one of these articles that Tammy had sent us was talking about the relationship between the USPS and Amazon mm, and how yeah. Amazon, and I think this is, everyone is feeling this now with coronavirus, right? We rely so much on buying things online now. <clears throat> and the USPS was not designed for this. And mm-hmm. it's just like, it's killing the workers, it's killing like the, the revenues, just like the model, the economic model to charge such low prices to ship so much they stuff. Started, right? They yeah. started, they started. Sunday delivery because of Amazon, basically, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's my understanding. Oh, I didn't even know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They do. When I was a child, yeah. you did not get the mail on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. But this reminded me of there was the thing in the news this week where Uber. Oh my uh, gosh. I don't. I don't know what the legal term is. They made this argument that if they've recognized their drivers as employees, they would go bankrupt, right? And a lot of people, I think, were correctly saying, "Doesn't this just prove that Uber's?" innovation quote-unquote was not innovation it was just ripping off their employees totally and yeah i think this is another example with amazon like amazon's big innovation you know you know it's supposed to be this like extraordinary system where you just click with one click right. you get anything around the world was fueled by exploiting a system of just just in- increasing the labor intensive intensifying the amount of labor that the usps does without necessarily paying them more to do it Totally. And I think, so I think they're both sort of allegories of like a lot of these technological innovations have a shiny surface, but underneath it is probably some sort of like loophole or hack or something, right? It's really true. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think I was thinking these two, these two stories are kind of be seen side by side and. I think Uber's best friend in Congress is Kamala Harris, so that's something to, I know. to think yeah. about. Oh, yeah, that's right. But, uh, right. Yeah, that is a, that and the is fact a good that question. The Wall Street Journal was relieved when you know Kamala was announced, right? There was a headline about, like, oh, great, it's Kamala, basically. Right. Yeah, you know? they're, so. they're, I mean, I, the, her, her ties with Silicon Valley are going to be interesting to think about, especially, I mean, I don't, look, I don't think that it matters so much, but, you know, her husband does defend corporations, you know, mm-hmm. his most famous case, did you know, guys know this? His most famous case was defending uh, intellectual property claim for the Taco Bell Chihuahua. <laughs> no. Yeah, which he lost. Like the guy oh who created God. it got $45 million in the end after like oh, 10 wow. years or something like that. But he's like the Taco Bell Chihuahua lawyer, right? And so wow. he's like a big firm. He, <laughs> he's like a amazing. big firm lawyer. He's at Jones Day, yeah, right? I think does uh, IP for... Um, <laughs> for for yeah, corporations for now like i don't think it's some sort of thing where like you know he's gonna it's not like uh 
Veep, right? Like where, like <laughs> where he's like trying to go to launder his like business interests through the vice president oh of the God. country. I love that show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Andrew. Yeah, I don't think it's like that. But to say part of the unformed part of Kamala, right? And as she has gained more power, is that she has definitely become more corporate friendly, which I think actually matters much mm-hmm. more than. Um, you know, her past as a prosecutor. The cop yeah, part. like the cop part is right, like a good yeah. tweet. But like, you know, like yeah. you're going to not stand up to Amazon and Facebook. And it's so is, true. Uh, yeah. Not that she has any power, but, you know, like it would be different if like Liz Warren was like the vice president, right? Like not to, mm-hmm. I know yeah. that all the Bernie people are going to get mad at me for saying nice things about Liz Warren and Kamala. But like, you know, like <laughs> Liz Warren would be at least more, more hostile towards tech and yeah. Would probably be more protective of the post office than yeah Harris. yeah the antitrust stuff is going to be really interesting under you know if best case scenario they win yeah it's funny we're like treating Kamala as the actual president like we, we haven't <laughs> even talked about Biden this entire summer <laughs> yeah, you want to talk about like a somebody who is like completely unformed who's like a total cipher at this point. Like Joe Biden, like oh I have God. no idea. It's just like you. Re- I I've had this thing where I like was like getting mad about the about the DNC, and then I was mad about I hate the Lincoln Project so much, and then like all these like because Matt Iglesias like you know like dunked on me, all these like fucking centrist like politics nerds started you know trying to cancel me, not actually cancel, but they're like they're what, like wait, swarming my mentions. Yeah, I don't know this. I what just happened? said like oh I hate. I, basically, I was just like you know, this is. Like Joe Biden's gonna swing right back into the arms of like centrists, right? Um, mm. I don't care what his fucking policy papers say that because they don't mean they don't uh-huh. mean anything. They're fucking policy uh-huh. papers, um, and all these dudes were like being like, "This guy doesn't understand politics," you know? Like he doesn't right. understand. Yeah, really? and I was like, oh first God. of all, I don't. You know, that's you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm poorly educated. I'm just like a hot take artist, you know, and, and I'm a nominal journalist in that like I can write pretty sentences every once in a while. I just write about myself a lot. None of what you've said is inaccurate. But like, you know, like, are you crazy? You think that two year two policy papers that he wrote, like in the past six months, erases the entirety of who Joe Biden was before that? And like I think a lot of people yeah. do think that. I don't personally think that. Wow. I think Joe Biden is who Joe Biden is, right? And he's going to be yeah. who Joe Biden is, and he's going to be like, I want to get along with everybody. And, you know, and what that means yeah. is that you just kind of, like, cozy up to the never-Trumpers, right? And I don't understand why that isn't the most uh, obvious outcome, because that's what always fucking happens, you know? And I don't think that yeah. writing, like... that does seem pretty obvious. Yeah, like, great. He did a very progressive climate policy paper. You know, it doesn't mean shit. It still has to be yeah. negotiated through all this other stuff. And who is he going to capitulate to? Like, is he going to capitulate to, like, fucking AOC and Ed Markey? (laughs) No, right? He's going to capitulate to, like, John Kasich. Um, Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Anyway. I didn't realize the convention was this week. I've been shutting it out of my my mind so much. It's, like, starting tomorrow. Yeah. Do you guys think that the AOC thing matters? Like, that she only got a minute? I mean, sort of like, what did you expect? Like, they're not going to... They're not going to treat her like Obama in 2004, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, think, I find I it think so weird. I think, yeah. It's, it's really, it is depressing, though, you know? I mean, yeah. I know I think, we have such low expectations around the Dems, but, like, we've gonna, fought really hard for a lot of stuff, you yeah. know, since 2008, and we're still here. Like, that's that's pretty depressing. I think so, his, I don't I think know. history is on her side. 
I think AOC is going to grab power soon. Well, I, I mean, like I the part that right. I don't quite understand, this will be the last thing we say because we've run very long, is that I don't, you know, like Bowman, you know, Rashida Tlaib won again, like fucking mm-hmm. like uh, Ilhan Omar won again. Ilhan Omar. Oh, yeah. like, and Markey looks good. Yeah, so you, ha- I mean, Markey is not like part that. of like the new young squad, you know, but like, but <laughs> right. yeah, but still, but he's, 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 a, he's, he's displacing, he's displacing, you know, like he's going to beat out like a guy who's like an establishment plant, basically. And sure. I don't understand why they would not want to at least just like give some fucking I lip know. service to all this excitement that I people know. feel instead of just being, hey, you know, cool, fuck you, you know, which is what it sort of feels Seriously. like. But of course, that's no. what they were going to do. I know. I think, but... it's, I think it's good to have clear divisions so we know where everyone good. stands. Yes. Because the... know your enemy. Because if they were going to try to um, co-opt it, that like people would people want to be co-opted, and I don't want them to be. I want. I want this. Yeah. I want the squad to stand on. That's its own. a strong Marxist scholarly take to end <laughs> on. Fair enough. I um, appreciate that. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you for listening to our show. Uh, we do this every week, actually twice a week now. Sometimes. Um, you, <laughs> Too yeah. often. Uh, we have the uh, we have an interview that I did with Viet Thanh Nguyen coming up, and uh, later this week as well. And uh, if you want to reach us, you can reach us on Twitter at TTSG Pod, or you can email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. We have been getting a lot of your emails. We want to read more of them on the show, and we, re- we do appreciate the feedback. Uh, honestly, it's been amazing. Just the community that has been built up around this show for all three of us I think like just talking to you guys and hearing your thoughts I think it's a type of conversation I I think that's what we hoped is that we would have a type of conversation that we typically don't have Um, and uh, that has worked out so far so thank you for that and yeah uh, we will see you next time